Welcome to Semio Bites, bite-sized podlog episodes related to theological semiotics. Hi there, you're listening to a multi-part episode, so be sure to tune in and subscribe to catch all of this series of episodes to fully experience this topic. Welcome back to Semio Bites. This is episode two, discussing extinction, reviving climate change and the end of the world as we know it. There you go. So we left off, you indicated that there was a sizable Christian portion within Extinction Rebellion, and the question that you posed to me is, you know, where's the Jewish end of all this? And I'll be honest, I don't know how many Jewish people are involved in Extinction Rebellion, and it gets complicated. Do they identify as Jewish? Are, are they Jewish by birth? Are they Jewish by how they are raised? Are they religiously Jewish? And then if so, how do you define that? It's not as easy to define as Christianity is. I mean, but even that's complicated. You know, people say they're Christian because they're born Christian. They have people say they're Christian because they choose to be Christian. Right. Judaism gets more complicated. And the extension rebellion position, the sixth mass extension, the climate crisis, all of that, Christians are across a rainbow of positions. Some deny it on the basis of their Christian faith. Some affirm it, embrace it, and preach it on the basis of their Christian faith. That's the minority, however. Within Judaism, it gets complicated. And if I'm talking, I'm talking from my perspective, which is a orthodox, some may view as modern orthodox, but I don't feel I'm nearly as modern as modern orthodox, um, perspective from Portland, Oregon, which is, again, a very liberal city in part of our enclosed society here. Um, from my learnings, and this is me quoting people I've read, uh, Dr. I think Dr. by no rabbi at Lawrence Kellerman, uh, Rabbi um, Ken Spiro, and Rabbi Arya Kaplan. These are some popular names within the Jewish world you may not be as familiar with. Uh, I've heard you mention some of those. Uh, Arya Kaplan, Kaplan was yes. one of you I've heard yeah, you I, before. His writings are an amazing to engage he really what he did is he I feel revitalized spirituality mysticism and a scientific awareness within the orthodox world uh, he passed in the 80s so it's up to that point and many of his books are actually he had written almost near to finish and didn't publish publisher picked it up and fit Posthum- are coming out posthumously yes um, all, all of his works have been published by now but yeah. it, a lot of works there really um, broadened horizons within the Jewish world a rabbi Conspiro he's a he's a contemporary rabbi he he got his Shmiko or his rabbinical award or degree in this concept called world perfect but it's not looking forward to utopia it's saying how do we define utopia and how is that utopia expressed within a Jewish worldview as opposed to a non-Jewish worldview through history. I see. Okay. And so it, he kind of gives that insight of where we were and how we're going type thing in regards to looking to the past. But you've indicated it's not a solid science. It's a lot of, well, maybe this, maybe that. <laughs> yeah. And then um, Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman, he dives into the concepts of faith and can we believe what we believe and how do we define faith and what do we believe and what sources do we look at and so when I'm talking I'm talking mainly through what I've been able to absorb through them either through reading their books listening to their podcasts or going to their lectures and um, Robert Kaplan is a one of many writers in this uh, book I'd recently mentioned 
to you. When I say recent, it's probably been like six months now. <laughs> um, it, it discusses... What was the book? It's a, it's a scientific battle and discussion. I'm going to have to look up the title real quick so I can okay. give the exact title. Come back to it. Yeah, but it's this, it's a scientific discussion, and they deal with, you know, within the scientific method, what struggles do we have within the Jewish worldview? How do we introduce this issue to the Jewish community so that it's not la, 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 eyes closed, ears closed, not listening, right. but saying no. If we have a situation such as climate change, how can we accept that? How can we deal with it? How can we move forward? And... That there is an actually a, an academy of Jewish scientists that have been pursuing trying to bring this to the Jewish communities at large. This and that scientific the, question, the question this, of methodology, this being aware mm-hmm. that science exists, yeah, and that we need to take that into consideration. Yeah, not not necessarily scientism, but being aware that we can't just we can't just put our heads in Torah, put our heads in some book we're reading. We have to be participants in the right, world right. and when I say participants in the world I go back to the concept we've discussed in the past parties like the Garden of Eden type situation right. we're caretakers we're stewards if we're supposed to take care of it we should take care of it yeah. and the science right now is saying oh there's an extinction we event failed that. exactly yeah. and so where's our personal culpability and personal yeah. obligation yeah. And as as Len had mentioned during commencement, there's this Talmud pr- principle that it, it's not it's the walk calmly now and to do now and to be now, and that that's one of my personal things I've mentioned to you is that it's I can talk up the wazoo. Oh, here's where here's where we're going. Oh goodness, what do we do? It's not going to do anything if I don't do something personally right now. And what I'm doing personally right now may not make a difference in the long run. Right. It may be inconsequential, but at least I'm doing something. Well, Chris Hedges, one of my favorite, happens to be a Christian Harvard Master of Divinity Mm -hmm. and a Pulitzer winner foreign correspondent, war correspondent. And I quote him extensively. Um, And he points out that we don't fight fascism expecting to win. We fight fascism because it's fascism. That's a good point, and and it's it, it's a, it's a crucial point, and it goes back through history, centuries at least. But I, I don't really want to go down that rabbit trail, the moral dimensions of this uh, at this point. I do want to ask you a question. Yes, the mistake that since the Reformation, at least in what the 16th century Martin Luther was 16th century yeah um, I'm going to say yes without positive well, see, that, he, he yes. runs parallel to Copernicus see okay. and there was evidence in that book we read the Luther book that we read in the cohort that yes. he was aware of Copernicus writings so the reformation from within the church and the scientific revolution outside its walls were running in parallel Okay. and what happened to Christianity was what Roger Olson in his book Journey of Modern Theology calls over accommodation okay instead of saying now wait a minute do these guys have the right concept the right philosophy of science in what they're doing they didn't even ask that question they gave them total free license on the philosophical foundations of their scientific method Mm -hmm. approach inquiry theory speculate all of that 
They just gave them free license and went into this habitual, reflexive, how do we incorporate what they're discovering into our theology? How do we make our theology aligned with these, this new scientific knowledge? Wrong way to go. The Catholic Church did a much better job backing up and saying, okay, we'll conduct our own scientific inquiry and investigations. And much of what we know in cosmology today is because of what the Catholic Church is doing. The Protestants, oh my God, how do we adapt to this? Uh, uh, let's see, how can we make relativity theory work in creation? I mean, and it's been that hand, you know, that trembling, quaking, fearful response for 400 years. And it's led to two things. Theologies that continue over-accommodating to where there's no Christ left. It's only empirical science in their theology. Or it's what used the three monkeys, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Mm -hmm. They just shut, shut science out. They become science deniers. They become, for lack of a better word, 21st century Luddites, although they all carry smartphones. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but my question is, in Judaism, how does that accommodation versus innovation, let's, let's cast it that way. Okay. Why, does Judaism innovate its own scientific worldview? Or do they try to accommodate the prevailing scientific worldview? Both and neither. I, I know that doesn't really answer. But Let me it, just elaborate. I, a lot of the Orthodox community, especially the more observant Orthodox community, even Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, to go and say, they don't necessarily have smartphones. They have kosher phones. It's, it's been scrubbed of, it has filters to make sure that they're not exposed to things inappropriately, right? That We've talked about how many Orthodox Jews don't necessarily watch TV. Right. And it's it's an insular society. They live within their circle. They do things within their circle. They have their knowledge. They have their pursuit. There is a concept that some rabbis um, have stated, yes, scientific knowledge is great and all, but if you have the opportunity to read a book on science and climate change versus, you know, this study on this passage in Torah, you should always choose the study of the passage in Torah. Why bother with the science that God deal with that? So there's one perspective. Right. That's that's. I'm oversimplifying, but that's kind of a denier Luddite approach. Yeah. It's, it, a, it, it has, it's a soft Luddite kind of thing. It's more of like, a, eh, that's not for me. I'm just going to go. I'll just absorb this much technology, but then, you know, it's clean enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then there is, of course, the other approach. Um, I think this is more found... You'll find it within modern Orthodox, but also more within, you know, like the conservative and reform and even secular Judaism is you'll have people who are more engaged. Well, I was just, I mean, I'm just thinking. Israel is on the forefront, especially in medical science mm -hmm. yeah. and in communication science yes. and, frankly, in military and industrial science as mm -hmm. well. So it, do they, I guess my question comes down to, like everyone else, like every other nation in the world, they're on doing their best to be on the cutting edge of scientific inquiry and knowledge and innovation, etc. How do how does Judaism bring its values into that scientific undertaking, or do they? Again, we have to break it into different categories. Different categories, right? so I mean, differently. For example, we're talking head of science and all all these pursuits. There, I mean, if that's just as a sidebar, the BDS movement, really, I don't understand. Somebody will say, oh, I don't want to support Israel, ban SodaStream, and then they'll use Waze or Google Maps or Apple Maps, and or they'll use a phone. Well, if they Intel chips, all that's made in Israel. Yeah. If yeah. you really don't want to support Israel, 
become a Luddite, have no technology, because <laughs> all technology comes from there. <laughs> that's really what's going on right now. And that's you'll find that more in areas like Tel Aviv. Huh. Tel Aviv is a secular city. Yeah, It's not a religious city. You want religion? You go to Jerusalem. You go to Svat. You go to mystical places. You can go to Ein Gedi and see where King David hid in the mountains. You, you can do those spiritual explorations Mm -hmm. but the cities where all the science and technology is being done that's Tel Aviv not those locations and so you you will find religious individuals that work within that field and have found a way to balance it within their own worldview Um, I'm more of a well duh this works because shouldn't science and Torah work together if it doesn't it means we don't understand it well enough yet that, and what does that bring us back to the Mandora the resonant harmony of differences yes. they're different they're categorically different things yes and it's a mistake to assume that one is going to justify the other either way better to think of their differences and how they can be put in harmony yeah and I think they totally can be in harmony I from from my experience uh, in the past of being a Christian, I think that there can be a harmony there. And then from currently being with an Orthodox Judaism, well, definitely there there's harmony. There can be. There should be. Uh, I believe we should be stewards, and to be stewards, we have to be aware. And how you have can to be I be scientific to be a good steward of a yeah. nature? Yeah. I mean, th- then there's also um, there's this concept we have, right? If I do something that I know is not good, wrong for me. Is there a consequence for it? Is the, Here's a common ex- Christian example. Is it a sin to drink? Yeah. And I know this is slightly off topic, but I have a purpose here. Right. Within Judaism, we have this understanding. Oh, if you're an alcoholic, no, you definitely shouldn't. But if you're not an alcoholic, yeah, you can drink. Yeah. Well, doesn't it, doesn't it cause problems? Can't it cause cancer? Can't it cause diabetes? Can't it cause all these medical issues? Of course it can. We have this concept found in um, Proverbs that God looks over the simple. And so we say, I'm allowed a certain amount of simplicity and a certain <laughs> amount of personal stupidity where I do something that's not necessarily good for me. Right. And God's going to, that's whatever. I'll grace. take, I'll take care of that there. part. Yeah. yeah, it's it's what, you focus on whether, and if this is, if, if your advice is that you smoke a cigar once a month or, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah, that cigar once a month may eventually kill me. Yeah. And I know it's killing the entire world because of its carbon monoxide and all the toxins. Right, right. But then there's that, well, God's going to take care of those types of things. Yeah. We have to continue to be stewards and do the best we can. But we also have this concept. Um, there, Within Judaism, we have Yom Kippur, right? This big day, I think... I think a lot of Christians have to confirm, view this as the Day of Atonement when sins are forgiven, mm-hmm. and that's not true. That's actually Rosh Hashanah, the New Year. That's when we're pleading to Hashem because He's writing in His record book, and then at Yom Kippur, He's reviewing the notes more or less. Yeah, I see. Okay. And so Yom Kippur, we fast, we <laughs> liken ourselves to angels, and we're super spiritual beings yeah. for twenty six. While you're hours. reading these notes, this is who I am, right? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're saying, hey, hey, no, well, not even this is who I am. We're saying. This is who we can aspire to be. This can be the collective good within humanity. And then the second naiva, the second, the closing gates of prayer, we're done. It's nightfall. Everybody swarms the tables for the buffet of food and just shoves in their mouth. (laughs) And it's this dissonance, what's going on here? And and the comment is, is that 
God knows that we can't be good and perfect 100% of the time, but one day a year, yeah, we can pull that off. Yeah. Uh, we, we strive for our best every day, but one day a year, we can be our best yeah. no matter what. I, I, I try to, I've lately been thinking about what, what can we do from an Extinction Rebellion point of view to kind of get the point across? Of, and, and the carbon footprint is probably the cr- crucial concept at work here. We're carbon-based life forms. Yeah. So we have to have a working relationship with carbon yeah. or we die. And that's the relationship that's broken. We picked the wrong energy source. Yeah. And to, to twist the dagger of that bad decision, we made it a profitable enterprise. We got greedy about it. Capitalism, wrong energy form, here we are. Well, let's so break it down a little simpler. Okay. okay. Um, and the reason is for the audience here, okay? Sure. Because they're going to say, yeah, okay, big picture, I get that. Small picture, how does it impact me? How have I participated? I'm going to bring something up. Being a vegetarian, I'm not, I'm not trying to judge on meat eaters, but I'm going to say cows is a, pro- cows a problem. That, that is a huge use of land and a huge waste to the environment and causes a lot of issues. It's the animal industry. Yes, but... Making it industrial is the problem. Yes, but if you look at the animals, the one that has the greatest negative impact is cow. It is the cow, yeah. Yeah, I mean, goat's not an issue. Chicken's not as, not as an issue. And depending on what your Jewish tradition is, chicken may not even be meat. Right. But cow, that takes up a lot of space, yeah. and there's a lot of problems. We've got methane and everything. You mentioned the possibility of maybe we should try to fix that problem, not necessarily by getting rid of cow, but by... The waste that's caused to reutilize that somehow. Yeah. That's so, is this more of a personal thing that people can it's, it's, it's both ways. I mean, go back to Lynn. I mean, it, it scales from the particular to the universal. Yeah. I mean, being a vegan is definitely a good Extinction Rebellion action choice to make for exactly the reasons you say. But, uh, and this, I'm not, I said but and really shouldn't. I'm really only saying that the. Uh, Industrialization of the meat industry is the big carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. You have, you having a steak twice a month, if you were growing that cattle on your acre of land or five acres of land or whatever is an appropriate grazing for cattle, it's not so much a big deal because it's distributed and the consumption would be much less. And the biggest piece of the carbon footprint is the industrialization, not the cattle. It's what you have to do to industrially process cattle to turn them into a food chain. That's where the carbon footprint is. The carbon footprint is in the cattle trucks and in the cattle slaughtering mechanisms and in the cattle processing. That's the big piece of the carbon footprint. You having to stay twice a month, if you were growing that cow yourself, it's a pretty small carbon footprint. And if you look, statistically, there's a couple of wonderful graphs. You go back at least 200 years, but better 400 to the beginning of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. and you graph out the carbon footprint per capita, per person, it's not flat because population has enormously increased in those 400 years, but it's not, it's not an exponential change. It's a multiple, you know, an additive kind of change. But if you look at the industrial carbon footprint, it's... a rapidly rising curve, multiple exponential increase. So it's the industrialization that is the the killer, 
it's not the per capita. It's not the particular. It's making the particular universal industrially. That's where the problem is. So to just, and I'll wrap it up here on this particular point. In trying to think of what we as a, as a mass of people could do, let's say in America, mm-hmm. if we simply said, okay, two days a year, you have to live without a carbon footprint. Let's make that Earth Day mm-hmm. and Mother's Day. They both happen in May. They're a couple of weeks apart. Earth Day is a tradition that goes back to the 70s, and it's all about being a steward for the planet. Mother Earth, for God's sake, she's our mother. I mean, that's a wonderful metaphor. She is the nurture. She is the nature that sustains us. So those two days, if you tried to live without a carbon footprint, you could go nowhere. You could eat nothing. Where do you get your food? You have to go to a store. You don't grow it in your backyard. How did it get to that store? In a truck. How did it get on that truck? From a factory. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Your carbon footprint that brings the food to your table, unless you're growing it in your own backyard, is measurable, quantifiable. And when it's accumulated, that's the carbon problem. So two days a year, if we lived without a carbon footprint, we could do nothing. We couldn't eat. You, you could drink water, you know, because that's, you know, well, you're running an electric pump, most likely, which has a carbon footprint. So what could you do on a carbon-free day? Virtually nothing. You could breathe, but you'd be taking carbon in and putting carbon dioxide out. You'd be taking oxygen in and putting carbon dioxide out. You'd be contributing carbon emission. You see what I'm saying? I get that, but I... I mean, I I'm not so. being extreme about it, but I, I'm, I'm trying. I'm playing with this idea. So, I think it's feasible. I think it's possible uh, on that regard, and, and here's why: because uh, within Judaism, we have six fast days a year. Okay. Well, that's kind of, I'm thinking it was a carbon fast. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, but we, we've got six fast days, and our fast means no food, no water. Yeah. Okay. So we're removing that. Uh, Several of our holidays are Yom Tov days. We don't we, we don't drive. We don't flip switches. It is as it is. Yeah. Theoretically, one could for Yom Kippur. It starts just before sunset the night before. Go off the grid entirely. No lights. The no pain. heat. No AC. No, yeah. Yeah. You re- rely on a blanket. Rely on shine body heat. Uh, it, you you make it to synagogue in the morning. You're you're there. Davening all day long. If if I I know there's the impact of having a book, but you yeah that, that that's a small thing. Yeah. And you know, for people who are really skilled, they may have already had it memorized. I, yeah, I'm not yeah. there. That that's the extreme, you know, radical approach to it. And, yeah, uh, but that wouldn't be wrong. But I, I I'm thinking, you know, personally, because of going through Yom Kippur every year, yeah, that's a feasible thing we could pull off. Yeah. I don't think moms will appreciate taking Mother's Day though. <laughs> But it is it's something feasible we could yeah. do. But would those two days a year make that big of a difference? Ideologically, yes. In terms of the baked in extinction, no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but ideologically, it would be a mind altering experience. If you really put your heart in it, it would change your view of reality of what it would take to live in nature as part of nature instead of exploiting nature for your own comfort and convenience and greed. That's an ideological shift that's needed. 
in mass. I mean, this is some, this is a way of looking at reality that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, that would be the benefit. Now, I full well know that with luck, 10% would be go all out to try to be truly carbon free. Best case, 10% would do that. Another, say, 45%, half of the other remainder, would say, well, okay, I'll stock up. Hmm. You know, day before, I'll go to the grocery store, I'll get what I need. I'll so cook the steaks. You know, they're offsetting it, but they'll go that day and not do anything. But they've stocked up so they can get through that day. Yeah. You know, with they may have to reheat their cooked steak from the day before. You know what I mean? Things like that. They'll kind of soften the blow. That's another half of the 90 that's left. The last 45% aren't going to care. They're going to be in the denier or, yeah, that's all interesting. Like, I have friends that I've had to block on Facebook. Because they give me this, that's all well and good, Terry. That's all nice and quaint of you, but you're isolating yourself. You're alienating yourself. And I'm going, really? I've tripled the number of contacts and friends and relationships I have in the last two months because I joined this this movement. I have a question for you on that, okay, on the blocking. Because no. you mentioned that a few times, right? Are we talking like slowly throughout this program you've had to block? more and more people, or is this just a flat-out block party from the beginning? You just blocked everybody. No, no, it's it's not a block party. Uh, I, I can count on one hand the number of people. And, and when I say block, it's not a full defriend or unfriend. There's a thing called taking a break. Where you just mute them? Well, you can set how much of their stuff you see and how much of your stuff they see. And what I do is I continue mostly to see them, but they can only see my stuff if I tag them. That's called taking a break in Facebook. Okay. So that's what I've done. I, 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 there were a couple of cases where I just had to say, you know, I don't have time to deal with you. People who just rant profanely and blindly, dogmatically, you know, so close-minded, their skull is con- imploded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's sad. Uh, and there are a couple of those, but there's probably another three or four that I've had to kind of take a break from. It's called in Facebook. If you click block in your options, it says, are you sure we'd rather just take a break? And you can click take a break and set those preferences. See, I just have mine set up that I've got like five people who can see everything I do. Yeah. Everybody else, they see most things that are I've already determined are sterile. Yeah. And um, if there's somebody I'm just getting sick of reading what they're doing, I just say hide all from yeah I, I, I'm, I had not been public on Facebook for a long time I had been yeah. just friends I've got like 550 friends now I guess and I had been just friends could see my stuff unless mm-hmm. I chose to go public and I very rarely was going public with anything on Facebook for the last couple of years I didn't want to get caught up in stuff while I was working on the dissertation yeah no my public post maybe one or two a year well, and but see now, I'm almost entirely public. Almost everything I post is public. So even those people that I've kind of blocked, they shouldn't see it, even though it's public. Because I've said, you can't see my stuff unless I tag you. That's correct. But or unless they went, log out. Unless they log out. Well, I went public because this is a public tale. This is a public witness. This is a public voice. This is a public message. Mm-hmm. It's a public sending of signs and I, I want people to engage me on it. I don't, I don't mind getting engaged with people who are climate deniers. I, I have kept 
one friend from way back who is a climate denier. And and he chides me about it, and I'm in his face. I tag him in all of my heaviest climate extinction rebellion posts, and we we're we're we are on good terms about it. Mm-hmm. And it's not as simple as agreeing to disagree, because I'm not agreeing to disagree, and I said as much. Agreeing to disagree is a kind of treason to reason, because. You and I agree to disagree about things in the sense that we will continue to talk about this. You're not going to let me yeah. off the hook, and I'm not going to let you off the hook. We're trying to get this bridge between Christianity and Judaism. Mm-hmm. There are areas of intense tension there that we have to resonate and harmonize. So if we just said, well, we disagree, disagree, we've betrayed our intellect as a, as a Christian and as a Jew. Yeah. So when people say, let's just agree to disagree, I go, on some things, I'll agree to just stop talking about it, but I'm not going to agree to not think about it and not challenge you on it if you bring it up. <laughs> so on that, um, I just sharing, um, there's this rabbi, Rabbi David Lichtenstein. He does this podcast called Headlines, and it's um, modern debates regarding Jewish law. Okay. And so with the whole measles outbreak, right, he did a series on vaccines. And so he brought in a bunch of experts for vaccines and against vaccines, and he brought in leaders of the of the anti-vax movement. And at one point, because he made his opinion very clear, he was like, "Well, no, we need to do this." And the anti-vax leaders like, "We shouldn't do this." At one point, the statement was, "Well, let's agree to disagree." And Lichtenstein said, "No, that's that's not Good how this him. works." Good for him. Yeah, but that, that, him. that's what that reminded me of. Yeah, yeah. And I've used I've said, "Let's just agree to disagree on this." Yeah, but uh, in the last six months or so, I've realized that's really a cop out. You're just blowing off the issue. You're, just, and not you're dealing just, with it. You're just selling out your own intellect, and you're disrespecting the others, and that's treason to reason. I'm glad I kind of stumbled across that little lin-like limerick way to put it, but yeah, it's a treason to reason on both sides. It really is. Yeah. So. This has been your dissertation process. The name of your dissertation to all of our listeners. The end signs. Are we getting the message? And the end signs has an exclamation mark. And Mm -hmm. are we getting the message is a question. The subtlety there is the end signs is a complete sentence. The subject is the end. Signs is the verb. It's not just a noun phrase, Mm -hmm. you know. The signs that come at the end as a nine front noun phrase? No. It's a full, complete sentence with a subject and a verb. And that's a subtlety about the title that has to be, you know, it helps to read the dissertation to know that going in. And I have a footnote at the very beginning that explains it. The end signs, are we getting the message? Yes, and this dissertation has been approved and endorsed by Portland Seminary, which is part of George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. Portland Seminary is based in Portland, Oregon. They are regionally accredited, so this is a legit thing, and it is a legit doctorship. You you have your doctor. This is what your specialty is. You've focused right. on this. Um, I imagine your dissertation is quite lengthy, yes? It, well, yeah. I mean, you can't re- put science and theology and faith and logic in resonant harmony in 20 pages or less. So, so That's why I ended up breaking off the track, too. Yeah, and, so and this, this podcast is just for fun now. I, well, it's more than fun. But I, it's, it's something it's that crazy. needs to happen. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I so respect what you've done 
with your dissertation. I don't remember the title, so you should repeat it. So go ahead. Uh, that would be a Yidbrick. Um, that's a short part, um, right. with my website being Yidbrick Building Jewish Bridges. Uh, let me grab this stack of 150 pages. Oh, there it is. Yeah, Yid, copy. Um, sort of. It's soft paper. Uh, Yidbrick, <laughs> Historical, Practical, Relational, and Theological Concepts and Challenges in Jewish-Christian Relations. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, both of our both of our dissertations are published at the Digital Commons for George Fox University. You can Google Digital Commons George Fox University. You can also visit our websites, yidberk.com, yeah. uh, which is Y-I-D-B-R-I-K. Right. If you put the C, it's okay. I'll still take you there. <laughs> .com. And so, where else can somebody find your well, dissertation? Mine is in my personal Google Drive, okay. and I will share a link to it. But you do have plans to publish, yes. I did submit it for publication, and Wiffenstock made me an offer. Mm -hmm. But if you're not a proven, marketable author, it becomes a vanity question. They're vanity publishers if you're not a proven author. So the cost for me to do my dissertation was in the $4,000 to $5,000 range because it was so long. (laughs) Now, we had a 50,000-word limit when I switched to track one. one mm-hmm. so without the artifact, you, you doubled the length of your dissertation. Yeah. So it went from 25,000 to 50,000, which is why I had to switch, because I knew I was not going to get my story told in 25,000 words. Yeah, mine's sitting at about 22,000, and that's 111 pages. Yeah. So yours is easily in that It's about double that. It's yeah. about double that. Uh, and, and to... And I even went way over the word limit. That's like 55,000, but they didn't ding me on that in the, in the evaluation. I'm just as gracious. If it's like in a traditional format, not even by 11, we're talking several very thick books here. Uh, actually, it's a double-spaced, 250-page document, single-spaced that comes out less than 200 pages. Yeah, but we're also talking smaller size, not in half by 11, but like 6 by 9 or something. Oh, like if you went with the tr- typical, let's say, paperback 5 by 6 or whatever size they use, um, it, would, it would still fit in a single book. I know because I made it single-spaced mm-hmm. and just saw what it came out as, and I put it in a 5 by 7 or whatever the paperback book size is, and it was still less than 300 pages. Okay. Right. So yeah. that's a reasonable read. Can people the, understand it? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, this is, uh, my advisors beat me up on this relentlessly, and I never did completely give in. The advice was helpful yeah. because I tended to be way too abstruse in a lot of places. And so the advice was helpful. It made me shorten sentences in a lot of places. I had paragraph-long sentences, you know, and, many, and still do. But big thoughts call for big words and big sentences. And these are big thoughts. I'm sorry, you know. And their their mantra to me was, you need to make this your dissertation understandable and accessible to the average, ordinary mind reader. And I'm going, that's contradictory to what a doctoral dissertation is, in essence, in the first place. Mm-hmm. In the second place, given the problem I'm trying to address and all of the different aspects of it, there's no way that an average person is going to, with, let's say, a half a high school education or maybe a year or two of college or junior college, it would be a challenge. You would have to read my resources. You'd have to read the resources I cite. And so it's no, it's not an everyday book. Now, I turned down Wittgenstein because mm-hmm. it became a vanity publishing issue. And what I'm going to seek to do is to see if I can do like a three, 
small volume thing, 100, 150 pages each, where I write to a more common reader and break it up into three topics, one for each of those volumes, and try to make it a much more accessible thing. But that's not in the near future. <laughs> that's going to take probably a year at least to okay. get done. The first one might be able to come out in a few months. second one a few months later, but all three will be at least a year. Okay. But it should be a much more accessible read. Is yours readable to the general public? I think so. I'd hope so. Good for you. I, I, I try to keep it readable because um, mine's, mine's a little different in approach and nature. I'm trying to build some bridges here. So if I can't keep it readable, yeah. it's not going to build that bridge. So, and, you know, having the podcast, I think, definitely helps. In this case, having these episodes, I think, definitely helps make this accessible for the reader, for you. I hope so. Because, of course, you've been discussing your entire dissertational process and everything and every episode we do. <laughs> yes, I have. And so it allows people to listen and, you know, they may not catch every word, but... Well, I, I, one benefit, well, I did this out of practical necessity. Because I'm putting science and theology, faith and, and logic together, faith and reason, in resonant harmony, I have to have a persuasive perspective on the classical mathematical perspective on science. Yeah. Well, I couldn't put that in the main body of a document or I would have been way over the 50,000 words. So I've got about 55,000 words in the main body of the document, but they don't count the appendices. That's true. And I've got like 60 pages of appendices. <laughs> and one of them is on how the complex number system and fractal geometry and vector analysis and differential integral calculus across the complex number system provides for a nine-dimensional theological view of reality and a nine-dimensional scientific view of reality that can be put in resonant harmony. So I solve the problem, and I give you a theoretical philosophical basis for unpacking that problem scientifically in its nine-dimensional cosmology. You don't have to deal with the nine-dimensional theological cosmology in doing the science. Conversely, you don't have to deal with the scientific cosmology in doing the theology. But they can resonate in one point of connection. Uh, I won't go into what that is. It gets pretty complicated. But I had to do both, you yeah. see. I had to speak to the, the faith community and the theology community and provide a theology uh, or a cosmology. And I had to speak to the scientific community, the analytic, the logical, the reasoning community that doesn't want to make that essential to the worldview and come up with a cosmology that worked that way. And that's mostly in the appendix <laughs> because it's all this fractal math and stuff. Now, I don't unpack the math. I just say, look, if you do this number system and you do these kind of mathematical operations there, you get into an intentional language framework of possible worlds and you can look at these nine dimensions of those possible worlds, and you have a scientific theory, a mm -hmm. scientific model. And then an, another resource I know that you make uh, available for listeners and readers alike is semiotic.com. There's no, yeah. it's not semiotics, it's semiotic.com. Yeah. And uh, you include a lot of visuals with your posts to help explain. You, you really like your mandorla images. I do. Uh, the Triketra and the mandorla, they're all over the place. But it helps. It helps somebody take this complex thing and visualize it. And yeah. so for anybody who's interested in getting a taste of the language with right. some images on yeah. what the dissertation is going to look like, they can go to your website. There's one particular blog post. It's one of the older ones. It's seven or eight back. 
and the, the description under it explains that it's a digest or a, an excerpt of my dissertation. And that's fairly accessible. And any of the really complicated stuff, I try to explain enough that you can get the idea and mm -hmm. move on. And so that's probably a good place if anyone who wants to venture into these waters, that's probably a good place to begin. When we do our posts for these casts, mm -hmm. I'll put a link into that particular one. The last five or six posts have all been about Extinction Rebellion. Just heads up. <laughs> well, that's that's what your focus is right now. Yeah. So if I were to sum up Extinction Rebellion, it is a movement to deal with the coming extinction, the not just the climate crisis. That's correct. But the coming extinction that humanity has dug its own grave for. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. And I it it. it it's easy to say, yeah, this is just a bunch of more people, and we wish they'd just have their say and go away. But we're talking about tens of thousands of people worldwide that have stepped into this movement. And to be actively involved in it, you have to commit to the willingness to be arrested for, for civil disobedience. So tens of thousands of people around the world have said, I'm willing to be arrested for civil disobedience to stand against this. And for those who haven't said that, um, I, I just want to remind you, look at the people you put in office. Look at the people you support. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I know a lot of people that love him. He's been arrested for civil disobedience. Yeah. And if you haven't been arrested for doing something, maybe you don't believe in it strongly enough, or maybe what you're doing is not an issue to the current powers that be. That's probably true. Who got arrested for doing 70 in a 55 zone lately? <laughs> they just hand out tickets for that yeah they do now if it's a school zone that's a different story oh yeah, yeah. but um, thank you for the listeners for listening to this two part mm -hmm. briefly touching Extinction Rebellion where all this leads right. obviously we have follow up posts on our websites um, to continue this conversation and we definitely want feedback contact us get involved we're on social media we have our websites we've got emails everything yeah. reach out let us know what you're thinking this podcast is actually posted on anchor one thing if you do use the anchor app to listen you have the ability to leave us a voice message and then we can actually play the voice message at the beginning of an episode and answer your query that would be wonderful yes i know i know yoni is tired of hearing me talk <laughs> <laughs> so we'd love to hear from you so that we can talk to you directly instead of just to each other for your entertainment yes but thank you for explaining extinction or buy-in it's um i know it's something that's been weighing on you heavily and me being in portland being the part of the local granola i i totally understand the idea of how do we live more sustainably how do we live more aware and thoughtfully conscious of the long-term applications let me of what make we do. a point about portland uh, i meant to do this earlier yeah uh, the two weeks of intense activism in L central London. I mean, they mm -hmm. locked down central London for two full weeks. They being the Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Rebellion. Thousands yeah. of some Extinction Rebellion activists were just in the streets, and thousands got over a thousand got arrested mm -hmm. for their civil disobedience. They moved around from four different locations, Marble Arch, Trafalgar Square. There were four different locations. They just kept moving around. The police would say, you got to clear away. And they'd say, okay, so they'll go over here. And traffic could move there. And they say, oh, well, you got to go over here. And they would move, and the traffic could now they'll go there. But they always had it blocked somewhere mm -hmm. for two full weeks. Portland is one of the few places in the U.S. that took action as well. 
A uh, very small number of activists in Portland, but they are Extension Rebellion. And the uh, graffiti artist, Banksy, mm -hmm. he did a work in London. And someone here in Portland reproduced it in different colors. And the, the activists for XR in Extension Rebellion in Portland used that and put it on a wall at Zenith Energy. Yeah, you've mentioned that. Zenith yeah. Energy, yeah. Uh, they run, I think, it's a railroad yard shipping coal. That's where they staged their rebellion. And what they did was they went out on the tracks and planted a garden. <laughs> and there's a picture, there's a photo of two of the guys in the rebellion sitting on this wall above their rendition of the Banksy mm -hmm. uh, tag. And anyway, so Portland is already engaged in the Extension Rebellion. Yeah, well, we're always engaged in anything. Uh, yeah, like that. I mean, Portland's Portland. a hotbed of liberal activity. And liberal, I hate to use the term liberal, but be that as it may. Yeah, so for listeners who are like, I don't know, what, what's something... Where where can I find more that's not super super involved? What's an easy thing? Um, I'll tell you what I started my own personal journey of being more environmentally conscious of things and trying to use less and reuse more is a film called Bag It. B A G Bag It, and it was all about reusable plastic bags. This man takes a look into it, documentary style, and. He, I came out changed from it, and this is available for free to watch on Hoopla Digital. Most libraries will give you a free membership to that where you get eight films per month, and Bag It is on Hoopla. I'm sure it's also probably on Netflix, Amazon Prime, any of those locations. You've mentioned it since I've been here with you this trip, and I will definitely look it up because so, I had not heard of it. It's a... It, it's two hours. It's a movie, right? Yeah. But it will change your outlook. And it's not going to be a, oh, this is a political issue, but this is where I have a personal responsibility. And not just that, the personal responsibility to the environment, but what are these things doing to me and my family? How is it changing our bodies? What types of diseases do we have as a result? Yeah. And so that's my own personal call to action is, hey, if you're not sure if you're ready for being arrested, if you're not sure if you're ready for <laughs> being in the streets, if you're not sure if you're ready for anything other than sitting down and watching a show, take a look at Bag It. That's excellent advice. That's excellent advice. And if you just search Sixth Mass, sixth mass Extinction in any search engine, mm -hmm. you'll find movies and TED Talks and documentaries and articles and papers. I mean, they're in all the new, the, the issues are surfacing finally. The scientists are speaking out, and it's starting to show up in mainstream media more than I think anyone expected it to at this point, which is good news. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in to our next episode. This wraps our two-part brief introduction to Extinction Rebellion and personal responsibility with being environmental and trying to avoid extinction. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a brief idea of what Terry has been obsessed with writing for the past three That's years. That's true. Obsessed is a fair word. <laughs> All right. Talk to you next time. Thank you, listeners. Send questions, comments, and suggestions to semiobytes at gmail.com. Semiobytes is a podcast co-hosted by Yedbrook and Semiocity that answers Semitic questions via Semiotic analysis by addressing misunderstandings to build a bridge of shalom between Judaism and Christianity. Semiobytes is a component of the Track 2 dissertation process at Portland Seminary for Jonathan Esterman and Terry Rankin.